In February 2019, EFCA pastors and church leaders gathered at Trinity International University, Deerfield, Illinois, for the annual theology conference. The focus was on the theme, The Doctrine of Creation, Theological Significance and Implications. On this episode of the podcast, we share Michael Whitmer's concluding message on the doctrine of creation and human destiny. Michael serves as professor of systematic theology and historical theology and director of the Center for Christian Worldview and Bible, Religion, and Ministry, Grand Rapids Theological Seminary and Cornerstone University, Grand Rapids, Michigan. I wanted to echo what Jonathan said, that it is a, quite a privilege for me to be with a group of pastors, and I was always planning to be a pastor, and then got sidetracked into academics, and I know for many of you, like, well, that would be a great job, because you get to study and write and you know, deal with people, and that's true. Um, <laughs> however, I just want, and I know this is naive and grass is always greener, but I am really envious of you, because in people's holiest most neediest moments, when they're dying, they call for their family and they call for you. You get to be in the room. Right? You matter to people. I know that people can be the, the thing that you want to get a break from, and that's true, but, but what, a, what a great calling. And to be a pastor of the Church of Jesus Christ, it is, and if I don't get to do it before I die, I'm going to feel cheated, because that really is where it's at. So I've just enjoyed and being here and being part of such a, a stellar lineup, and I thought, well, what makes my talk special? Well, if you sit patiently through the entire thing, at the end, you might win a book. <laughs> so, there's that. So we're talking about the begin- creation and human destiny, right? The beginning and the end, which is really about eschatology. And a couple c- comments about eschatology. Really, if you think about it, with anything, the end determines the meaning. The final score determines the meaning of the game. So we just had uh, the Super Bowl that was referenced yesterday. And um, after the Super Bowl, is Tom, is Tom Brady the greatest of all time? Is Bill Belichick the greatest coach? By the way, you know Bill Belichick also, the last coach to win a playoff game for the Cleveland Browns. And that tells you about my, I grew up in Northeast Ohio, so that tells you about what I think. Um, but the greatest of all time, right? That's the conversation. But remember, it was tied in the fourth quarter, 3-3. And at one point it was 10-3, to 3 and a Rams wide receiver dropped a touchdown pass. If he had caught the ball, it would have been tied, and who knows, the Rams could have kicked a field goal and won. And then the conversation would have been different, right? Oh, Tom Brady, he's over the hill. He, 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 played a mediocre, he played a mediocre game. But because they won, and he had nothing to do with it. He was on the sideline when the wide receiver dropped the ball. So just sports is interesting because it's the final score that determines the meaning. If, if you... If Michael Jordan scores 60 points and the Bulls win by one, what a competitor. He did not, he willed his team to victory. He would not, he refused to lose. If he scores 60 points and they lose by one, got to learn to share the ball. Right? It's, it's the final score that makes a difference. Another thing with eschatology, and this, this blows my mind, but it might blow yours. Um, time moves in the opposite direction that you think. Right? Intuitively, we think we're moving this way. We are moving into the future, right? That's how it feels. But actually, time goes in reverse. The future becomes the present, and the present becomes the past. 
As Ponningberg taught us, the future is coming at us like we're on a treadmill and the future is being fed to us. So why is eschatology everything? Because the future is coming for us. And so the future determines the meaning. And so we're really talking about hope. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says, The three great virtues are faith, hope, and love. And we're right to focus on the greatest of these is love. But don't forget, hope made the cut. Hope is one of the top three Christian virtues. And what is hope? It's really just faith. Faith in the promises of God. Faith in the future. So hope does not mean wishing, like we say hopefully. In the Bible, hope is a firm and certain knowledge, as Calvin would say. I, in you, can say we know what happens when we die. Even though we haven't died yet. We know that because the word of God tells us. So this morning... I want to talk about what we know about the future, what we still aren't sure about, and how the end is really wrapped up in the beginning. So the first point I want to make, and this is really important, Jesus, who is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega, Jesus is the center of our hope. Right? Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So I just want to make sure we're clear about this. Jesus is the center of our hope. Everything that matters about your life and mine comes down to one question. What is your connection? What is your relation to a Middle Eastern man? Are we in him or not? If you think about it, the moment we die, that's the weakest moment we've ever experienced, right? We're helpless. But the very next moment is your greatest moment ever. It's the moment you see, have you thought about that? What will you say, what will you do when you see Jesus for the first time? Give him a a fist bump, a hey, my name, no. Revelation 1, his best friend John, when he saw the glorified Christ, he fell at his feet like a dead man. And Jesus, uh, we assume he'll raise us up, embrace us, and give us that new name that he's promised us. So I just want to be clear that the center of our Christian hope is Jesus. But our hope also has a circumference. Right? So nothing matters more than Jesus. It just kind of goes with what Jonathan was saying about creation and the gospel. The gospel is most important, but the gospel is not separated from creation. There's a center, Jesus and the gospel, and there's a circumference, which is creation. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, there are saints in heaven who are in the presence of Jesus but they still want something more. They call out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And each of them was given a white robe. They were told to wait a little longer. Notice here these saints in heaven, they're they're still in time. How long means they're temporal. So don't be that that person. Don't be a jerk. Let it slide. But when someone says we have eternal life, technically we actually, we're creatures. What we have is everlasting life. Only God has eternal life. Only God has a life that had no beginning and no end and that transcends time. You and I, 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 I began existing in 1966. It's too late for me to have eternal life. What I have is everlasting life, a life that had a beginning, but a life that will never end, and not because I have this spirit which is indestructible and God can't get rid of spirits, but I have God's promise. Right? The God who made me from nothing 
could annihilate my soul and body if he wanted to. He's promised me he won't. So, as we talked about earlier this week, um, our contingent existence. Think, think about how contingent our existence is. You and I got no vote in being born. We just are here. We also have no say in going out of existence. Even if someone commits suicide, they will continue to exist somewhere so long as God chooses to keep them in existence. So again, a lot of things slide is not worth quibbling over, but it's, it's an important theological point that in heaven, people are still in time. How long, O oh Lord? So when we die, we don't actually step into eternity. We don't step into God's realm. God transcends time. God, he's the creator. He transcends everything. God is, we're temporal. God is eternal, which means outside of time. He's, he's not temporal. So we have just, it's an important point to make that difference. So the saints are in, in, they're in time, and they're also impatient. So again, Jesus is the center. They're foc- focusing on Christ, but they want something more. Well, what do they want? I think the Christian hope really comes down to the big three R's. We long for the return of Christ, the resurrection of the body, and the restoration of all things. And so they're longing for Christ to return and the resurrection of the body. It was mentioned this week about, um, uh, about funerals and somehow how sloppy theology gets said in funerals. And in my experience, even in our, most, our strongest churches, in funerals we talk as if the person who's died, they're doing now in heaven, whatever they did on earth, just better. Right? So if they're a musician, now they're jamming in heaven's band. If they're a golfer, now they're hitting all the celestial fairways. If they were a pain in the neck, they are really annoying right now. Right? We're just making stuff up. Right? So praise God when someone dies, their soul goes to be, what a comfort. Never minimize that comfort. But the Christian hope is not that you go to heaven and get stuck. The Christian hope is that going to heaven is the first leg of a journey that's round trip. Jesus, the Bible ends, come Lord Jesus. And when he comes, he's going to bring back our loved ones, resurrect their bodies, and put them back together. And they'll live here forever with us on this restored earth. But so often, Christians, it's just, we haven't thought about it. We We talk as if when you die, you just go to heaven, and you get all of God's promised future all at once. But think about it. If that's true, if our loved ones are in heaven and they're, all could not want for anything more, then what's the reason to pray for the return of Christ? What's the future resurrection of the body if they already have the resurrection body now? So the way I try to explain it is, remember when your kids were small, we'd, we'd let them open a stocking on Christmas Eve or one present, but we'd save the lion's share of the presents for Christmas morning. And so when we die, God gives us the best gift we've ever got. We see Jesus But he doesn't give us all of our promised future all at once. He parcels out his gifts so that we long for the Christmas morning of the resurrection when Christ returns. So the tension is, comfort our people, praise God, your your loved one is with Jesus. But that intermediate state is not the focus of scripture. All we know is that they're with the Lord. There's no suffering, there's no pain in heaven, but there is impatience. How long, O Lord, till you return and avenge us? Um, 
if we had a question and answer time, that'd be a question I would, if I were you, I'd ask me. But we don't have that, so you can't. Um, but email Greg Strand, and he'd be, that's a good, good question for Greg. So Jesus is the center, but we're restoring creation. And so creation is, is a circumference, but this is a talk about creation. So I just want to say this. We're not talking about this morning the most important thing. Jesus is the most important thing. But we are talking about something that really matters because it matters. It's in the Bible. And so Jesus wants to restore us in him, but also all things. So we're going to talk about creation and how that relates to the new creation. And just so we're clear, we're talking about the circumference, not the most important thing. But it still does matter. In fact, there's this story in John 21, which I think really nails this tension that I feel. Uh, It's after the resurrection. Jesus has appeared a couple times, and the disciples are waiting out of fear for the Jews. And Peter says, I'm going fishing. Now, I don't think that was Peter backsliding. I'm a Baptist, that's the word we use. Um, I don't think it was Jesus now fishing for fish again when he used to fish for people. I think, what do you want, what do you want from him? He's waiting for Jesus to come back and give him his marching orders. And Peter says, you know what? I like to fish. I'm going to go out, I'm going to fish. And six of his friends say, we'll go with you. So they fish all night. And they get skunked. Because in the Bible, if you fish all night, you always get skunked. But that, didn't, that doesn't bother him, right? It would have, a couple of weeks ago, like, oh man, I, I, all night I'm tired, I'm dirty, and I didn't get anything. But it's okay, because Jesus is alive. History's changed forever in just last week. But then there's this shadowy figure on the shore, and he says, hey, try the other side. So they throw the nets over, and now the nets are breaking with so much fish. And Peter realizes, hey, that's Jesus. So what do you do? He puts his clothes, apparently he fished naked, he throws his clothes on and jumps in the water, which is backwards, from, but he's, he's flashing towards Jesus like a sponge, slowly. And what does Jesus say? Right? He's going to Jesus because it's Jesus. Jesus matters most. But Jesus says, Peter, go back and help your friends. Feel the tension? Jesus, the Redeemer, matters more than creation, but redemption sends you back to help your friends in creation. So they drag in the fish, and how many fish did they catch? 153. Do you know what that means? In the presence of the resurrected Christ, someone's counting fish. (laughs) Who does that? Probably Thomas. Can't believe it. (laughs) Now fishermen do that, right? Jesus matters more, but the fish still count, and we're going to count them. And then I love this part. Jesus says, give me some of those fish. And think about this. The scarred hands of the resurrected Christ made breakfast on the beach, built a roaring fire, let the coal settle, made it nice and hot, and baked those fish and some bread to, to prep Peter for that really hard conversation. Peter, do you love me? More than all these. Feel the tension? Jesus matters most, of course. But the world still matters. And so we're talking about that circumference of creation. And in some ways, talk about creation, human destiny, creation, new creation. In some ways, the end is the same as the beginning. Because the biblical story is, you know, this creation, fall, redemption. And the word redemption means to restore. Redemption is this world fixed. And so a a rule of thumb, again, we have more questions than answers. 
But a rule of thumb is, if something is part of creation, we expect it to remain on the new earth. If something is part of the fall, we expect it to be gone, because that's the point of redemption. So examples would be culture. This was mentioned this week, Revelation 21. Uh, the kings, the gates of Jerusalem are never shut, and there's commerce and kings bringing their, their glories in. Richard Mao wrote a fun little book on this, When the Kings Come Marching In. Uh, they're very well maybe trading, but in a fallen world, business is corrupt and abused. But in an unfallen world, if I make something and you make something, we might swap, and, and that's fine. Isaiah 60 says, on the new earth, Isaiah's vision, he sees flocks of Kedar, rams of Neboeth, a silver and gold. There will be animals on the new earth. So I'm going to say something now that might strike you as paganism, but only if you're thinking like a pagan. I think my little dog has a soul. Now you say, no, because it means, I'm not saying my dog's soul is going to live forever. I think my, my dog dies, his soul dies with him. But my dog is more than just material react. He barked angrily at my neighbor, and I've seen enough Disney movies to know she stole something from my garage. But, but he, he, he's got a spirit about him, right? But that doesn't mean, only if you're a platonic person, you think, well, if you have a soul, then the souls are indestructible. No, our souls are not indestructible. Your soul and my soul were made from nothing. And God could, he's strong enough, he could snuff them out if he wanted to. So I don't expect to see my dog on the new earth. But Isaiah says, there will be animals there. Maybe one that looks suspiciously like my dog. Isaiah 65, 21, on the new earth, Isaiah says, we'll build houses and dwell in them. We'll plant vineyards and eat their non-alcoholic fruit. That's my Baptist translation. Um, it works if you know Hebrew and on your second glass of wine. It, it, it works. Um, but just think about how, how normal. In Isaiah's vision, the new earth is very normal. Now, some evangelicals get all excited about this. They also, oh, so if I make a handcrafted canoe and make it just right, maybe my canoe will make it to the new earth. I, I wouldn't count on it. Um, even culture now, right? Even if you go to Italy and see the paintings and the Mona Lisa in France, but even cultural products that we make now are really hard to preserve. It's not, I'm not saying if I plant this tree or if I paint this thing and do it really well that God will preserve that. What preserves over time is not cultural artifacts, individual products, but cultural know-how. As I write a song or do a painting and you make a dish, we, we pass that knowledge on to the next generation. So I'm not saying that we, if I do something really well culturally, somehow I'm participating in the new earth. But as Jonathan alluded to, we are, in, we are in anticipating it. Right? So he said, only Jesus can bring in the kingdom. We can't bring in the kingdom. We must wait for Jesus. But as we're waiting for Jesus to come, we can wait passively or we can choose to wait actively. Let's, let's wait actively. Let's do the types of things that anticipate Jesus' return. Bear witness to the kingdom. So when people look at us in our churches, they say, you know what? When Christ comes back, the whole planet's going to look a lot like that. So I'm not, I don't want to oversell this and let's all work really good at painting and somehow that thing will preserve. But it seems that when Christ returns, we do enter the new earth at whatever level of cultural know-how we have. And we'll have um, Bach, as far as we can profess to be a Christian, no reason to think he wasn't. Imagine having Bach on the new earth when he's got forever to write music without the handicap of the fall. 
if you like being human and you enjoy living, and we live in a fallen world, but it's still quite nice, right? August, the best eating month of the year in, in West Michigan. Um, peaches are in, blueberries. I love eating, but every peach I've ever had has come from cursed soil. Imagine the burst of flavors. Imagine how the color blue will pop when this world is restored. So even though we live in a fallen world, we live on the other side of an apocalypse, right? I mean, Hollywood is full of these apocalyptic movies now. Mad Max, Fury Road, Frozen. Um, but, <laughs> but we live... We live on the other side of a catastrophe. And yet, it's still pretty good, right? So, I'm not saying we're going to participate, but we can anticipate it. Uh, Three exceptions that I can find in Scripture to this rule of thumb. Uh, One good was mentioned yesterday in the Q&A. One good of creation is marriage. In Matthew 22, there's that trick question about the, um, the wife who kept marrying these eight, you think by the fifth guy, fifth brother, like, you know what, no, she's, not, she's toxic. But <laughs> she married eight, eight brothers and they all died. So who's she going to be married to? It's a trick question. And Jesus said, well, there won't be marriage on the new earth. So in a fallen world, people die and people get divorced. And because of that, there is remarriage. So sin has so scrambled up marriage, even God can't put one marriage back together without violating another. But, as Ephesians 5.32 says, marriage now is actually a shadow of a higher, deeper marriage. We'll all be married, actually, to Christ on the new earth. But marriage is the one good, I thought it was a good answer yesterday about how uh, it won't be sexual union, but the intimacy will be shared with with all people. Uh, Two things with the fall. Um, Isaiah 65.25, Isaiah says, When the lamb and the wolf fly down together, the lion eats straws like like the ox, yet dust will be the serpent's food. God curses the serpent in Genesis 3 and apparently never takes it back. And Jesus still bears his scars. And I think maybe this is there because when we've been here 10,000 years and counting, we'll never get arrogant and think somehow like, yeah, we, we did this. Every time we see a snake, we'll remember our sin. Every time we see Jesus, we'll, be, we'll remember what he did for us. So it, it reminds us of the gospel. So in some ways, the end is the same as the beginning. But in some ways, the end is also way better. It's more than the beginning. Because we don't just believe in creation, fall, redemption. We believe in creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Now, sometimes you may hear this creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And I think that's just theological stuttering. Because... Restoration, we already have that covered with redemption. That's what redemption means, to restore creation. So creation, fall, redemption, you don't need a restoration. You already got that. It's actually a consummation. And a consummation is, is I call it redemption plus. That God doesn't just restore creation. He takes it to that higher place it was always intended to go. The end is better than the beginning in at least five ways. And this is all that I've come up with over the years, but if you have more, I'm, I'm wide open and glad to, to learn them. But one better of the end is Emmanuel. In the Garden of Eden, God came and left and came and left. In the end, he's here permanently. Revelation 21.3, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. God with us. That's Emmanuel, right? We've got to stop reading that name backwards. It does not mean us with God. The Christian hope is not that I get to go up there. The Christian story ends with Jesus coming down here. 
In fact, if you look at the story of Scripture, every time God shows up, he's staying here a little bit longer and in a little bit more permanent form. So Emmanuel, um, glorification in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, created with original righteousness, but they could sin and they did. The end will be confirmed in righteousness. Herman Bavink says, we'll have the absolute certainty, the peace of mind that God will keep us and not allow us to mess this up. We'll have um, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about spiritual bodies, which, um, the, talking about the human sexuality talk yesterday, these, human, these spiritual bodies, they're still physical because Jesus' resurrection body, who's the first fruits of our resurrection, was still physical. Um, it was brought up about, but after the resurrection, Jesus could just walk through walls. Well, he could do that before he died too, right? They're going, and he's in Nazareth. They're going to throw him off a cliff. And he just disappeared in, out of their midst. So Jesus can do things because he's God that we cannot do because we're not God. But it seems that Jesus' resurrection, well, it doesn't seem, Jesus' resurrection body clearly was still physical. So our best guess is spiritual bodies mean not non-physical, but maybe because we have access to the tree of life, or maybe somehow God will just give us this derived immortality, but we'll be unable to hurt ourselves. Death and pain will be gone. So... I mean, think about this. If, if you're a Christian, you don't need a bucket list. There's no sense of, do it all now, because you're not coming... If you're a Christian, you're coming back. And you'll have forever to do what you didn't get to this time around. So don't be stupid. Save bungee jumping for the new world. <laughs> what, what's the point? You've got forever to do that. All the thrills and none of the danger. Maybe you just bounce. So spiritual bodies. Also... Also higher culture, right? The Bible starts in a garden. It ends in a city. Think European city. Um, the difference between a garden and a city is culture. So somehow God does incorporate our efforts into the creation. He's, uh, my analogy for this is, like, I, I'm a, I can't draw even a... I, I, I can't see the third dimension. I'm a terrible artist. So even my people are just stick figures. So if I do some squiggly lines... But then some master artist comes along and starts filling in shade and color and depth. I can say, yeah, I contributed to that. Maybe something like that. Our cultural feeble efforts. But God, the master artist, comes along and, and adds things. And so that even though the city comes from heaven, it's from God, our cultural contributions are somehow included. And then finally, there's one more. There's one better, which is not here despite the fall, but actually because of it or at least in part because of it. In 1 Peter 1.10, Peter says, angels stand on tiptoe trying to understand something about God. Only forgiven sinners can really fully understand how loving God is. Adam and Eve, before they fell, couldn't comprehend that. They hadn't had a chance to be forgiven. Angels, if they fell, they didn't get a second chance. But we understand something about God better, not despite the fall, but actually in some ways because of it. So the end is, in some ways, the same as the beginning, and the end is also, in some ways, more than the beginning. What we all should agree on, though, is the end is definitely not worse than the beginning, or clearly not less than the beginning. And as Jonathan said, the Bible is very clear, Genesis chapter 1, this world was created good. But as I, as far as I can tell, there's at least two evangelical, call them dangers, two movements in evangelicalism, two streams of thought, which 
at least to me, can imply that in some ways the end is worse than the beginning, at least as we traditionally understand. Uh, The first is Platonic spirituality. And this view takes part of what's God's good creation and lumps it into the fall category. This view is suspicious of the physical world. It calls what God calls good, it, it calls it evil. It, it says that matter is the matter. And when I was in seminary, and I was learning for the first time the Christian worldview and many things that Jonathan was saying, I was, I was really excited. Like, yes, that, that's, I need that. But there was these pesky Bible verses. But I said, but I don't think that fits with that text. As I studied the text, I figured out how really what the Bible is saying and how it is encouraging what, what Jonathan told us last hour and what I'm telling now about the new creation, new earth. So this is the most exciting thing I've discovered in my Bible study. And if you see this, all that I'm saying is going to make sense. If you don't see this, I'll save it for, for the question and answer time. But th- this is the key distinction, right? The, the distinction between ontology and ethics. Or to make it simple, when I'm talking to just church folks, nouns or verbs, or things versus actions. And I'll explain it this way. Um, you know how the same word can be a noun or a verb? Like the word rock. Rock can be a thing. Or rock can be an action. We will, we will rock you. Or a hammer can be a thing you're going to nail with, or a hammer can be an action. Don't tweet when you're hammered. It will not be so impressive when you sober up. Right? Understand the, the difference? Nouns, verbs, things, actions. So that helps with John, right? John 3.16, God so loves the world. 1 John 2.15, don't you love the world? Well, that's not fair. <laughs> God loves the world and tells me not to? Or is John and God using the word world there, cosmos, in two different ways? In John 3.16, it's it's ontological. It's things. It's now you and you and you. Put your name in the blank. Everything that God made, God loves. 1 John 2.15, though, it's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. What are those things? They're not things at all, are they? They're sins. So when, when we read 1 John 2.15, John is not telling us, watch out for stuff. Watch out for things. He's saying, look out for sin. Don't love sin. So I heard a, a pastor once pray, Lord, protect us from the things of this world. And I know what he meant by that, but it really is an odd thing to say, actually, isn't it? The things of this world are not our problem. Our problem is sin. Now, every good thing can be abused. But we fight the abuse, not the thing. Our problem is not stuff. Our problem is sin. Now, we can't make an idol out of our stuff, but that means we fight idolatry. We don't fight the thing. Uh, Luther said, there are people who worship the sun and the stars, but we don't drag them out of the sky. There are people who go to prostitutes, but we don't kill all of our women. There are people who get drunk, but we don't pour out all of our wine. Okay, I'm Baptist, we do that one. Um, But we don't have to, right? God's good creation, we we fight drunkenness. We don't have to fight wine per se. Uh, This helps even when you're talking about sins, right? Why is pornography so awful? Because pornography is the perversion of God's gift of sex. If we tell people, just stop looking at porn, that's all they think about. Oh, don't look at porn. How about go back to creation? 
What is porn the cheap parody of? How can you, in your present condition, celebrate and honor God's gifts of sexuality? Focus on that, and the perversion will be much less interesting. So we, we know how to do this, right? We, we separate the sin from the abuse. I've Thanksgiving, right? On Thanksgiving Day, gluttony is a live option. We, we ate too much, and in West Michigan, we watched the Lions, and we think, nope, next year we will not do this, and we do it again. So we know that we can commit the sin of gluttony. But I've never heard a prayer, a blessing for the food, go something like this. Lord, please guard our hearts today from the sin of gluttony. Temptation lies on every side. There's potatoes, both mashed and sweet, and there's corn and tossed salad and ham and turkey. Lord, please guard our hearts from gluttony and, and forgive the hands that prepared our temptation. <laughs> Wouldn't that end with a guy wearing the mashed potatoes? Right? No, so we fight the sin, but we, we thank God for his good gifts. So ice cream is not your problem. Just, I was talking to a seminary faculty a couple years ago, and one fellow was saying, I'm walking to school, and the sun is rising, and the birds are chirping, and I'm just saying, thank you, God, for living in your world. And then I thought, uh-oh, have I just crossed the line? Am I maybe enjoying the world a little bit too much? And so I think we've all had this thought. But I said, well, I don't think, I mean, God made every pleasure receptacle in your body. Sex was his idea. Chocolate came from him. And strawberries. And strawberries dipped in chocolate, right? It's all from God. Why would we think God is somehow waiting for us to cross a line and have too much pleasure from his creation? I don't think that's possible. Now, you can enjoy pleasure in the wrong way. You can make an idol out of it and put your hopes and make it expected to deliver something it can't possibly deliver. And what one helpful, helpful, helpful way for me to think about this is the Greek word adiaphora, A-D-I-A-P-H-O-R-A, adiaphora. It means things indifferent, things neither here nor there. It comes up a lot in Christian liberty conversations. I think we can enjoy any wholesome, keyword wholesome, gift from God, as long as that thing is adiaphora, as long as it's neither here nor there, as long as we enjoy it with an open hand. I'm enjoying this, but I'll share it with you. I'm not protective. It's not an idol for me. So don't fear that you're taking too much pleasure from life. God wants us, First Timothy 6.17, in the chapter where Paul is encouraging, be generous, sacrifice, share, he also says, God has given us every good gift for our enjoyment. So let's not be, I guess, more pious than God. Let's enjoy his good creation. Another text, Colossians 3, where this comes up, this distinction between nouns and verbs, ontology and ethics. Colossians 3, verse 1. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated, at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. If you just read those two verses by themselves, you think, oh, like Plato would have taught. Live for heaven. Don't worry about earth. Watch out for ice cream. But that's not what he's saying. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And in Greek, the phrase earthly nature, the exact same phrase as earthly things. So now Paul will tell us, what are these earthly things? Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, idolatry, age, <laughs> rage, anger, malice, slander. Stop lying to each other. These things are all sins. And in verse 12, acts of righteousness are clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility. Things above are acts of righteousness. So the context will always tell you 
Don't just pull out one verse and say, oh, that's, that's what that sounds like. Read the passage and ask yourself, world, heavenly things, earthly things, are these being used as nouns or are they being used as verbs? One more big one is 1 Peter 2.11. Peter says, I urge you, as aliens and strangers, abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. A lot of the best-selling Christian books read that verse and say, so you see, we don't belong here. We're aliens. I call this Martian theology. It actually is prevalent in evangelicalism. A lot of Christian leaders and Christians talk this way. We come from outer space, and we're here for a while, and praise God, we get to go back to outer space. When I was a kid in church, we sang, Countdown, somewhere in outer space, God has prepared a place. Anybody? Right? Love the song, but that's bizarre. Right? We're not, it sounds like that... Heaven's Gate, that called to put their bunk beds out in the mountain waiting for Haley's Comet to come by. But we sound that, we, we talk this way to non-Christians. No wonder they don't want to follow Jesus. Right? We're not, what kind of alien are we? Peter says, abstain from sinful desires. We're moral aliens. We're not alien beings. Um, it's not a good sign, but my theology could fit on one bumper sticker. We're earthlings, for heaven's sake. Right? We belong under, Jonathan mentioned Genesis 2-7. The Adam comes from the Adamah. The name Adam means red dirt. The most biblically accurate, theologically correct name you could ever give your child is clay. <laughs> or, or dusty. If you have a girl, sandy. Or, or terra. Or pebbles. Right? <laughs> uh, we, we belong to the earth. This is, this is our home. So, Jesus, as was mentioned yesterday in the sexuality talk, Jesus is fully God and fully human. Jesus is 0% angel. Jesus did not come to this planet to make us into spiritual angelic beings. He came to help us recover. Not help, but to, to not just help, but he, he came so that we could. He would cross out our sin and recover our humanity. So the end is what Scripture says three times, uh, Revelation 21, 2 Peter 3, Isaiah 65, 17. The end is a new earth. And there's a, a tension, a question here. New means different, earth means the same. So a really fun question is, well, what's different? What's new about the new world? And what's still the same? Well, we find a clue in 2 Peter 3, verse 13. Peter says, in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of of righteousness. Using our categories, what kind of word is righteousness? Is that a word about nouns or a word about verbs and actions? Doesn't describe what you do, actions? I think it's telling that when Peter looks at the new earth, what stands out as new to him is not new things, but the change is ethical. The new world seems to be this world that's been fixed. That's been restored. As Jonathan mentioned, Revelation 21.5. The voice from the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. God does not say I'm making new things. I'm taking what's already here and fixing them. And we use the word new in that way. Um, in West Michigan, this is about time of year. We haven't seen the sun for a couple months. And we're very depressed. But when the sun tomorrow, there, 
right now we have an ice storm and no one has power. But tomorrow the sun's going to peak out. And a few of us are going to be like, what? it's a small world after all. We're going to be really happy. And we're going to say, I'm like a new person. Well, it's still me. I just feel better. I'm fixed. So new doesn't have to be ontologically brand new. It, it's new. It's this world that's been restored. Same thing for us, right? Your resurrection body has got to be you. Right? If you, if you grab your arm, I hate when people tell me to do something, but so if you don't want to do it, don't, don't do it. But seriously, grab your arm. Your resurrection body is this body. If your resurrection body is too different from this body, you have not been restored. You've been replaced. And that's not the Christian hope. Okay, you can let go. Same thing for the new earth, right? The new earth has got to be this world. If the new world is too different from this world, this world's not restored. It's been replaced. So there could be differences. Like, will, will grass be translucent? Maybe. Uh, will, will colors change? Maybe. I don't know. There could be some ontological differences, of course. Spiritual bodies is, could be counted as something like that. But the new world seems to be a lot of continuity. The main difference is sin is gone and all of its effects. One more word about creation, because, again, Jesus is the center. God's more important. But I think we have to recover a healthy view of creation, even for the sake of our Christianity, even for the sake of our piety. Sometimes in very robust evangelical circles, and I think the influence is from Jonathan Edwards here, Edwards was so taken with God that he was very afraid of idolatry. And he actually may have fallen into panentheism, where this world is not actually separate from God, but this world is just a part of the being of God. And this has impacted some evangelicals so that when they talk about eating a sandwich, you get the sense you can't ever just enjoy the sandwich. To avoid sin, you have to enjoy God through the sandwich. Well, they say, why did God make honey sweet? Well, so we would understand what, how sweet God is. Well, that's true, but he also made honey sweet because he wants you to enjoy honey. Creation is not the ultimate end. Only God's the ultimate end. But creation can be a proximate end, and we can enjoy it. Here's the problem. If you're so in your fear of idolatry, if you're always saying that this world is nothing, if you're always putting this world down, if this world is nothing but an idea in the mind of God, then there's no separation from God. If you're going to have a relationship with God, you can't be a part of him. There's got to be distance. Right? Lovers know this. They say, whatever the distance, however high the mountain, I will climb it. However wide the ocean, I will swim it. Whatever the distance, I'll overcome it to get to where you are. There's got to be distance to have a relationship. As that country western song says, how can I miss you if you never go away? <laughs> so, so we have to be... We've got to be separate from God or there's no place to stand to turn and love God from. So creation is not the whole ballgame. God, Jesus, matters more than creation. But without a good, healthy, separate creation, you can't even know God. You can't even love God. Creation is also necessary for redemption. Jonathan mentioned John 1.14, the incarnation. The word became flesh. Take that, Serenthus, the Gnostic, that we think John wrote that against. You Gnostics who say the God is too high to be ever dirty himself with creation. The word, the Son of God, became physical. And also for salvation. The most spiritually minded church in the whole Bible has to be first the church in Corinth, right? 
They were so spiritual. They said, we speak in tongues of angels, and Paul doesn't talk very well. We're so spiritual. We don't believe in sex. If you're not married, don't get married. If you are married, get divorced. If you can't get divorced, just don't sleep with your spouse. So Paul writes this humming and hawing in 1 Corinthians 7, saying, okay, you're right, singleness is good, but marriage is not to be despised either. And then it comes to 1 Corinthians 15. They're so spiritual, they don't believe in a physical resurrection. That would be beneath God. And you can tell Paul's angry because he says it twice. Chapter, verses 12 through 17. He says, congratulations, Corinthians. If you're so heavily minded that you can't believe that Jesus physically, bodily came back from the dead, then you're still in your sins. You're now more pious than God. You are now so spiritual, you're not even saved. So again, Jesus matters more than creation, but without a good creation, you can't even have salvation. So the story of the Bible is way more than just the physical, of course, but it assumes the physical. The whole story is physical. It starts in a physical garden of delight. Uh, Israelites are delivered from physical bondage into a physical land of milk and honey. Jesus physically comes, physically dies, physically rises, physically goes to heaven, physically returns. There's going to be a physical new heaven, new earth. Without a good physical world, you can't even have salvation. Jesus said, the meek will inherit the earth. That wasn't a metaphor. He meant that. If you are a child of God, you inherit all that your father owns. What does your father own? Look around. You start to see how the Christian, the Christian hope, how exciting. Jesus is the center, but there's also a really fantastic circumference that Jesus wants us to enjoy. So Platonic spiritualism takes what the Bible calls good in creation and starts to slide it into the fall category and say you should really be suspicious of that. Matter is the matter. Somehow transcend your, your physical bodies. And we end with um, a Christianity which is subhuman, right? Come to Christ and become less of a person. And that's not what Jesus offers. Uh, quickly, a second danger that I'm seeing now comes from evolutionary science, which goes in the other direction and takes what the church has typically said would go in the fall category and starts to slide it into the creation category. And I, I put question marks here because this is part of the conversation that we're having. Um, I first encountered this, hit me, back in the 90s, I was doing my dissertation on H. Richard Niebuhr. And I was reading Niebuhr, trying to make sense. He used the word like creation, fall, redemption, but they weren't chronological categories. It kept running them all together. Like the same event, look through these glasses, you could say creation. Look through these lenses, you look at the fall. Look at these lenses, it's redemption. So these are just logical, theological categories to look at the same event, but they didn't actually happen. I thought, I was really, as a conservative evangelical, really having a hard time understanding what he's saying. And then uh, Langdon Gilkey wrote a book on Reinhold Niebuhr called On Niebuhr. And it really helped me because Gilkey said, Gilkey was Reinhold Niebuhr's research assistant. And Gilkey says, all these great 20th century theologians, they never talked about it. But they all just assumed privately that macroevolution was true. And with that, there was no Adam, there was no fall, there was no golden age. And Gilkey tells a story about Reinhold Niebuhr talking to um, Paul Tillich. And Reinhold Niebuhr was talking as if there was an original creation. And Tillich looked at his watch and said, Tell me, Reiny, what time was that? And then Reinhold realized he had been bested, and okay, so we don't really 
can't really believe in that. Agilkey wrote a really good, uh, important journal article that you could look up. Um, it's called Ontology, Cosmology, and the Travail of Biblical Language, in which he says all these great 20th century neo-Orthodox theologians, they talked a big game about the mighty acts of God. But when you press them, so the Exodus really happened? Well, no. It's just a lens through which we look at things. So an issue with this, if you believe that Genesis 3 is just a myth that describes a human condition, as they say it, there wasn't a sin of the first man, but the story just describes the first sin of man, then as you look back towards creation, there's a lot of continuity. There was no golden age. There was no catastrophe. There was no actual fall. So that raises questions, of course, about animal predation, suffering, and death. And this is an ongoing conversation. I think we all would agree that vegetative death is obviously okay. If Adam cut roses for Eve, those roses are going to die, but big deal. But the more you go up the food chain, it seems hard to think that God would think this is a good thing. Genesis 1.30 said, God gave animals every green plant for food. Isaiah 6.5.25 says, on the new earth, the wolf and the lamb will lie down together. Zechariah 11 talks about God, uh, the shepherd, um, upset with people who are just raising sheep just to sacrifice for no reason. Even the sacrificial system implies that there's pain involved. You have to sacrifice an animal. That's not something to take lightly. So the the accusation against people like me is like, you've been watching too many Disney movies and Bambi, and you you project onto animals. Maybe. But it it does seem to... it, It does... It's difficult for a lot of us to think that God would look at 500 million years of animal suffering and carnage and say, that's good. Certainly, we all should agree that human death is a consequence of the fall. Uh, Some people want to say, well, maybe natural, physical human death was just the way God made the world, and now it's just going to sting after the fall. So they distinguish between natural, physical death and a spiritual death. I don't think that works. I don't think the Bible does that. In fact, once you start separating natural physical death from spiritual death, I'd like to know how Jesus' physical death saves us spiritually. I think it's a dangerous move to, to separate those two. So if you look at um, macroevolution, they would, the tip of, what they've, a nice analogy is if you take all the history of the world and cram it into a 24-hour period, we humans showed up in the last second or two. Which means that even if you have a fall in that system, you've got, by their calculations, 500 million years of things that are hard to think, like, yeah, that's, uh, God would say seven times in Genesis, that's good, that's good. I think if you go that route, I, think, I almost think you have to say this, that the carnage, all the millions of years of predation, maybe they're a consequence of a prior Lucifer angelic fall that could solve the problem, but then you have the original creation actually being a redemptive act. And now you're confusing creation and redemption in some ways. But maybe, but that, that would be a, a cost that you would have. But what I'm hearing increasingly are people in our circles saying, no, actually, animal predation is, is actually a good thing. In fact, it may even be here on the new earth, which is great if you like barbecue, but... Hard to reconcile that, I think, with a good creation. In fact, a question you could ask, if creation wasn't good at the beginning, then why can you trust God to make it good at the end? 
A second issue that arises is with divine action or divine intervention. A, a question about deism. Uh, Jamie Smith at Calvin in the book that's uh, back there, it's going to be given away. In his chapter, he says, Too often Jesus is just another name we give to the deistic God we think science will let us believe in. So I'm, I'm not saying people who believe in evolution are deists. I'm saying it's part of the conversation and they realize it's something they have to explain. And um, it's, it's a challenge. Because if God was not acting in creation at all, uh, J.P. Moreland says it this way, God is allowed somehow or other to be involved in the process as long as there is no way to detect his involvement. So if God was not involved in creation and he's not involved in the fall, there's no cursing of the ground, there's no intervention there, then it does raise questions, well, are we assuming God's going to be involved in the end as well? If his continuity from where we stand, if his continuity all the way back, except for Jesus, then why do we think it will be disrupted into the future? I'm, I'm really reluctant to say this, and I'm not, I want to be really careful. This is a too early warning, right? So I'm not, I'm not making any accusations or any allegations. This is a warning which is too early, but it's something I've thought of. As I wrote on H. Richard Niebuhr and read about Reinhold Niebuhr and Gilkey and saw the 20th century, what, the moves they made, eventually they were wondering if God did not intervene in creation or fall, what about Jesus? Maybe Jesus is just the moral son of God and not metaphysically God. Nobody is saying that. So this is way too early. But it's just something, knowing what has happened in the last 60 years in other circles, something to pay attention in our, for ourselves. That divine intervention does matter. But to wrap up, human destiny involved with creation. It's not heaven or hell. The Christian hope isn't don't go to hell, so put your faith in Christ and you go to heaven. The choice is actually between hell or here. This makes a difference how we present the gospel. It's exciting. It's not just pray a prayer and you can escape all this. Pray a prayer and you're going to come back. Would you like to live forever here without any of the effects of sin? Then turn from your sin. The sin that's killing you. Repent and put your faith in Christ. And all this someday will be yours. So when my kids were little, we didn't say, pray this prayer with us and you can go to heaven when you die. We said, repent of your sins, put your faith in Christ, and you'll live with mom and dad and all your friends who put their faith in Christ. You'll live here. Because it's scary to a kid to think, okay, this stranger I've never seen is going to come and take me to some place I've never been. I I don't go to hell, okay, but I don't want to go to heaven either. Why not just teach them what the Bible says? Put your faith in Christ and you will live with him at the restoration of all things. Bottom line, as Christians, from creation to new creation, we believe in the three R's. The return of Christ, the resurrection of the body, and the restoration of all things. And that's why the Bible ends. The last prayer of the Bible is, Come, Lord Jesus. Thank you for listening to this episode of the EFCA Theology Podcast. You can find more episodes by searching EFCA Theology Podcast in any podcast app or on the web at efca.org slash podcast.